Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, and MeWe. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. What's going to happen? Something wonderful. 1980s science fiction has all of those elements that make greatness in cinema and storytelling. It changed everything. You know, I loved it. We felt so creative and we were so loose. Wow, what a great concept. It's the positiveness that made for repeat viewing. It's timeless. Knock me out surpasses our brains and goes straight to our heart. Sci-fi truly came of age and exploded in the 80s. It's time to start running! The whole audience for science fiction came alive. It's a ripe genre full of twists and offshoots. It was sci-fi movies that you began to take seriously. Showing people the dysfunction that we were headed for. I was the ultimate tough guy. I ain't got time to breathe. It just comes together as a thrill ride. What pulp does best. Badass sci-fi. Yeah! It still plays. I loved looking up into the stars and imagining what's up there. What I see is possibility. All kinds of possibilities. It's a completely conceivable future. That tells us about ourselves as human beings. I love things that have themes like that. I love the idea that you could just be transported somewhere in time. You built a time machine? What about the DeLorean? <gasps> Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Pekovich, and this is episode number 420. Available now until March 27 for purchase at 80sscifidoc.com is In Search of Tomorrow, an epic documentary that explores the sci-fi films of the 1980s, from classics like The Empire Strikes Back and Blade Runner to cult classics like Outland and Runway. Essential viewing for sci-fi movie fans and novices alike, In Search of Tomorrow is the latest film to be directed by David Weiner, who joins me now on the podcast. David, third time's the charm. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so very happy to talk to you today. Thank you, Matt. It's an absolute pleasure to be back. You know, I, as I kind of alluded to, this is the third time you've been on the podcast. Previously, we talked about the In Search of Darkness movies. And you know how much I have such profound love for those documentaries. Indeed. These films, this film, though, In Search of Tomorrow, there's a special little something about this documentary because where the horror films that we talked about before in the 80s, when I was a kid, a lot of those films were kind of unattainable. I didn't get to those until much later. These films that are in your in, in Search of Tomorrow, I remember watching these films as a kid in the 80s. There's a lot of nostalgia associated with these movies. In fact, the first movie I saw in the cinemas was Short Circuit. Mm. Um, and, and I remember the experience like, like ever before. And every time that movie comes on, I just remember everything about that day and, and my older brother, um, I had one of those cool older brothers who used to take me to the movies all the time. And mm. I, I just want to ask you in regards to these movies, 
what do you remember about watching a lot of these films? What do they mean to you? Do you still get that same kind of nostalgic kind of feeling even after all this time and being in the industry and maybe watching these movies hundreds of times? Do you still get that kind of thing in your in your in your brain in your in, your, in that bit of bit of your heart and your stomach where it kind of takes you back to the first time you watch these films? Because I got to say, it was a blast reminiscing when I was watching your documentary. I have to say, I have to admit freely that. Uh, when I rewatched E.T., which I've seen who knows how many times, many, many, uh, I rewatched it again right before I sat down to talk with D. Wallace for this film. And I cried like a baby at the end. Mm. I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I, I won't get caught up because I just know. And you get caught up in the nostalgia of not only the emotional moments of the film, but of your own experience watching it in the theater that first time. And by the end, it's just waterworks. And um you make a very interesting point, which uh, I hadn't really considered, but a lot of the horror films, you really weren't allowed to, or you shouldn't have been allowed to see it until you were a little older, at least in your teens. Whereas most of the films that are featured in this, maybe not RoboCop or Aliens, but most of the films that you, you saw that, that we cover in, in Search of Tomorrow were things that we all saw when we were very young and very impressionable. And um, there is that connection that's a very different connection that's uh, emotional gut level response to the things that really made us happy and really sort of formed our imaginations and shaped our trajectories in terms of what we wanted to do when we grew up, perhaps. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I'm not immune. When it comes to a lot of other people as well, they definitely feel the same way. I mean, in Search of Tomorrow is the most successful crowdfunded documentary project of all time. 11,000 plus sci-fi fans come to give a raise more than $1.3 million. I mean, that's just a remarkable number right there. And I've talked to so many people, so many filmmakers, producers, et cetera, about crowdfunding. Some stories have been successful, others not so much. What you guys have done with Creative VC, you got really got the crowdfunding aspect of this whole kind of venture down to a science where do you think you guys have succeeded where others have failed? Is it just come, does it come down to the fact that you are providing a product that a lot of people essentially do want to see because these films have such a personal value to them? What do you think it really comes down to? I think, I think it is a bit of a finger on the pulse of, of what people want. Um, I, we have the, first of all, by doing so well with In Search of Tomorrow uh, while crowdfunding, that took us all by surprise because we we had a real good bead on what the uh, horror audience had been like in terms of their responsiveness and their willingness to support and uh, and and just appreciate the type of work that we were doing. But sci-fi audiences are, are a little more diverse in terms of maybe polarization. I like Star Wars or I like Star Trek or I only like the Blade Runner kind of stuff, or, um, you know, it, it's a real wide, wide audience. So we weren't quite sure what, we knew that the movies we were tapping into, so many people love, but in terms of a concentrated audience, it was not that way. So we were really blown away by the, the support uh, that we got to get this film made. Um, what do we do at Creator VC? I, that's a conversation for Robin Block, who's the, the executive producer of these films and the mastermind of the uh, marketing with a, a great team that we have, a small but concentrated team. What is different that we do? Um, I think we really work hard and people, not that other people don't, but I think people recognize that that we are 
just as much as fans as they are, mm-hmm. uh, you are, you know, the people who support these uh, prog- projects can can really detect whether or not the people creating the project have their hearts and minds in it, or it's just something that they want to do to, to sort of, you know, tick a box. Um, I think that's a very important aspect of it. Um, and I think the other element is that these are real wide, you know, when you're covering a decade, uh, you can you can cover so many films, so many topics, so many conversations, so many ideas. Um, and you really do reach a much broader uh, spectrum of people who they might be like, well, I don't care about Short Circuit, but I love Mac and Me or How mm. the Duck. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there, I think there's something for everyone here. And whether or not you are in love with sci-fi or not, I think there's a huge amount of people who are in love with the movies of the 80s. Uh, and this, 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 compared to horror, transcends a little bit because... I've had so many people who say, well, yeah, I'm not really into sci-fi. And I'm like, but you like 80s movies. They're like, oh, yeah, I love 80s movies. I'm like, Ghostbusters, Hmm. E.T., Back to the Future, uh, Short Circuit, uh, Earth Girls Are Easy. Whatever you might bring up, some of these are just comedies. You know, they're just entertaining diversions. You know, you could even bring in Mad Max or, you know, Road Warrior or even Blade Runner. And they're just like, yeah, you know, I I think I like it a lot more than I realized. So it's interesting. What I love about the movies of that time that you guys really kind of tap into in the documentary is the whole kind of world-building aspect of the sci-fi genre, especially from the films in the 80s. You know, when I was a kid, I really had a fascination with space and space travel. It was kind of like the the pursuit of the unknown, what's going to out there. I I I was always the kid that was in the... You know, back in the day before Wikipedia, when we had like, you know, encyclopedias and we sort of go through the pages of it and such, I was Books, the one. Yes. Yes. I was the one looking up, you know, everything about, you know, the solar system and, and other, you know, anything I could get my hands on. And I think what really struck me in regards to the marking, especially of, um, of In Search of Tomorrow, is that poster, the kid looking out into on that cliff face very kind of reminiscent of the close encounters kind of cliff face and looking out and seeing the stars and within the stars you see all these kind of spaceships and such and it kind of mm-hmm. just brings back the awe um that that I, I kind of had when watching these films in the many ways i still have now do you do you think that kind of awe that kind of thing that really taps into the thing of us as kind of children the wonder that we have the possibilities of what could be in the future especially like back in the 80s when a lot of these kind of uh, movies really were based in the future. Um, sci-fi films are like that. Um, it really brings about a certain amount of, you know, just imagination. Of, yeah, I think this all sticks with us. That's tied into the nostalgia, if you ask me. Uh, the, that childlike wonder, the, the, the imagination connected with the possibilities of, of what the future could hold. Uh, what is out there? You know, just thinking about life, the universe and everything while looking at a canopy of stars. Uh, that's all tied into these uh, amazing adventures that we experienced uh, that were brought to us by some of the most childlike in terms of their imaginations, filmmakers uh, at the top of their game, you know, Spielberg and Lucas and, and uh, you know, Ridley Scott, James Cameron, you know, they all approached this uh, in a different way, whether it was a, you know, dark look at the future or a dystopian look at the future or a utopian look at the future uh, with lots of optimism. 
ultimately, this we all connected with the imagination that was on display, with the you know powered by ILM and and effects and practical effects that really were uh, not the same in prior decades. You know, and of course, you know, Star Wars is really the the movie that broke the mold in terms of the direction of so many of these films in terms of the optimism and escapism element versus the uh, the dystopian element that so many 70s sci-fi films, you know, um, you know, the Omega Man and Soylent Green and Logan's Run where uh, there was something around the corner that was a lot darker. Um, I think people were getting a little tired of that uh, in the wake of Vietnam, in the wake of uh, Watergate, and Spielberg and Lucas in sort of one-two punch of Close Encounters and um, Star Wars, that did so well at the box office. Other filmmakers sort of really sort of glommed on to the idea that you could just have popcorn entertainment and people would really, really line up in numbers to watch it. And that affected so many of the films and the story choices that got greenlit in the 80s. Going to the possibilities of science fiction to the realities, uh, the horror of sci-fi, of science reality. Um, you know, it's kind of both surreal and depressing that some 40 years later, some of the same fears um, that was, um, you know, described in some of these films that came in in, in the 80s are still around today. And in, in, in that I'm, I'm regarding to nuclear war, Cold War, the same mm-hmm. figures, the same uh, villains, the same countries. It's almost kind of like we've just zapped into a time machine in a sort of way, isn't it? Like we've got, got right. gone back like 40 years or so. It just it's so it's doomed to repeat itself, right? It, it, well that's that's the, that's the thing, right? The history's doomed to repeat itself. And I think the movies kind of like a, a really showed a snapshot of that. Um I think though for me, like I was born in 81. So when I grew up in the 80s, you know, I was just too you know too young and too naive to really understand the temperature of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to assume that you are older than I am. I'm 41, so I don't want to be rude and assume. Whatever. No, no, no. I, 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 I hang it out there for all to see because I like to create some context as to who I am in terms of these movies. I was born in '68, so oh, I was a seven, a '70s kid and a and an '80s teen in terms of my awareness and my the impact of all these movies on me. So, as an '80s teen. What do you remember of the temperature of that time in regards to everything going on between the uh, Soviet Union, USA, um, you know, uh, at that time, the Berlin Wall was still up, et cetera, and also the threat of kind of like this kind of like any time and you could be launched from anywhere. I mean, how palpable was that? And how do you think a lot of that really affected the way that people approached their kind of like their fix in, the, in regards to entertainment. In some, well, sometimes the reality of the time, just too much that people wanted to just check out, you know, Return of the Jedi the 15th time because they just want to escape uh, what was happening in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, it wasn't until later in my life that I really dialed into the news and keeping track of what's going on in the world because when you're when you're a teen, uh, unless you're maybe, and this is a broad statement, you know, perhaps unless you're maybe a European mode where everyone is much more political at an earlier age. If you're an American teen growing up, uh, you don't care about politics. You care about, you know, you know, girls and 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 music and movies and comic books and and doing as little as you can in school until you're told to do your homework. This stuff, though. 
that was happening in the 80s, uh, it, it was in all of the media. It was in all of the movies. It was on television. So I love James Bond. And James Bond, was it was the Cold War. And he's, he's always going up against Russia in some way, shape, or form. Or, you know, the communist bloc. Um, you know, Clint Eastwood jumping into, uh, you know, stealing Firefox from the Soviet Union hmm. uh, so we can have their technology and 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 be one, you know, the one-upmanship of that. Uh, even Top Gun, you know, uh, the engagement is against the MiGs and the Russians. Um, it's all there. Rambo, you know, Rambo's up against the Russians, uh, even though he's in Vietnam, you know, saving uh, the, the remaining uh, soldiers who were left behind. It, it's there everywhere, you know, Red Dawn. Um, so the movies, especially when I, I looked back at so many of the films that made such an impact on us uh, in the 80s in terms of sci-fi and the sci-fi genre and all its sub-genres connected to it, I found myself going back more and more to the realization that I had rep repressed the the knowledge that on a daily basis that we could die any moment because someone would not agree in the two superpowers and press the button and we'd all disintegrate. Now I thought we'd all disintegrate and it wasn't until, you know, while I didn't want to disintegrate, I figured, well, it's probably painless. This, these things are so powerful. It just wipes out a whole, you know, city slash country in, mm -hmm. in one fell swoop. Uh, Nick, Nicholas Meyer directs uh, the day after, which is the television movie about nuclear war. Yes. Uh, and 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 it, you come to the realization that it's not so clean, that uh, few a, a large amount of people die, but so fewer uh, die instantly. And most have to suffer the effects of, you know, of, of the nuclear winter, you know, uh, and it's, it's awful, you know, and that's around the time, you know, I, I don't want to give a huge long answer, but that's around the time where in high school, I now I'm reading books like on the beach by Neville shoot, hmm. you know, which is, you know, takes place in Australia where that's the only place that has not been obliterated, but they're all waiting for the, the, the radiation cloud to kill them all, you know, so they're living their best lives knowing that they're going to die, you know, soon. Um, this was all prevalent and right, right in our minds uh, on a daily basis. And so, um, as Barry Bostwick says in our film, uh, you know, he's in Megaforce. Um, you know, we looked to a lot of these protagonists in these movies to to handle this for us. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't have to really deal with the reality that was incredibly ugly. And that was part of either the... Uh, you know, living living through this time and, and looking at, at Alex Winter talks about this as well. Alex Winter from Bill and Ted. Um, you know, these these movies really were, were helping us psychologically to grapple with the headlines of the day. Uh, and some of them were complete escapism where you could just root for the protagonist, but it was a completely different world. And others were rooted, like war games, for example, you know, in, in the direct reality of, or Miracle Mile, for example, you know, the direct reality of what would happen in this what-if scenario of nuclear Armageddon. What I loved about that era of the 80s was kind of like the marketing of the films. You know, these days I like, and I say to my, my kids all the time, you know, you guys don't know how easy you have got it to be able to access the stuff that you can access at any given moment. You know, you have streaming platforms, you have the apps, you can, you got a whole library at your fingertips. Back then, we had to work really hard to get a glimpse of anything. Um, I remember a lot of the, a lot of the films that 
some of the memories I have about films wasn't through trailers. It wasn't through posters. It's actually through music videos. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. That was the era where the a really big single um, from a really hot artist would be featuring a soundtrack to a movie, and the film click would be clips from the movie, like these kind of montages. And I used to love watching these things all the time. A lot of times I get so many cues about what the film is about, and it will be associated with a song, and then I was like, I want to watch that movie. That looks awesome. Um, do you have any memories? Do you, was there any type of marketing of that time that really kind of stuck with you? Any type of, I don't know, poster? Um, trailer, um, video clip that really stuck with you at that time from that time in the 80s? Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's it, it's silly to have to remind people, but you do have to state the obvious that that's the pre-internet era. Mm. You know, internet was not even, you know, that was sci-fi, literally. That was literally a sci-fi notion, you know, that like, you know, William Gibson was writing about in Neuromancer or something like that, um, or Snow Crash. But, uh, uh, but basically... Um, it's funny that you mentioned the music videos, you know, we all saw, you know, the Ghostbusters video 5,000 times. And all yeah. we thought was how cool is it that the Ghostbusters are, are dancing with Ray Parker Jr. <laughs> you know, in the middle of Times Square. And how cool is that? You know, um, sometimes these music videos, they would do special shoots with the stars and not just show clips. And so you felt like it was almost an extension of the movie. Um, and it was very cool. And, you know, MTV really, really ruled uh, the, the fashion and the style and the trends. And if it was on MTV, that was the ultimate, uh, and you had to pay attention. And, and I, I'm sure these movies got so much more traction simply by having a mention or a, a video on MTV. So having someone like Julie Brown, you know, not downtown Julie Brown, but having Julie Brown in our film who, who co-wrote and starred in Earth Girls Are Easy, you know, she was an MTV personality and having her sort of uh, help share this perspective was very, very cool. For me, really, it came down to seeing the movie posters and the lobby cards in the movie mm. theaters. I remember waiting, you know, for, for uh, even seeing Star Wars. Uh, I only knew what I saw from a trailer once on television, and I knew right away that that's what I wanted to see. And I couldn't wait to find that trailer on television again. And sometimes you couldn't find it. No, you know? uh, no, so, no, no YouTube back then. No way. Exactly. So I remember very specifically waiting in line for a long time and looking at those lobby cards and just looking at the world that was there, just imagining what was about to happen when I got to finally sit and watch it. And uh, your imagination went wild. And so... Uh, Star Wars was very much a big thing, but it was the posters in the lobby. It was the it was the lobby cards themselves. Uh, and it was a lot of times, you know, you just would go to the magazine stands and they might have uh, an article about one of these movies that, you know, you wanted to see yeah. or you didn't know existed. I mean, I remember I first found out the first image of The Empire Strikes Back I ever saw was in the weekly reader in Scholastic for, for kids. And, you know, sitting in my fifth grade class, reading what was the equivalent of the newspaper for kids. And there's Luke sitting on a tauntaun and it blew my mind because I was like, oh, my God, there is another Star Wars. It is being made. It is coming out soon. And wait, they're in snow. What's Hmm. the deal? Uh, It got my juices flowing. The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by 80s Tees. 80s Tees is an online retailer of licensed t-shirts and pop culture gear from your favorite movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, comic books, and musicians. 
celebrate your inner 80s nerd and click on the link in the show notes below to get the raddest retro t-shirts delivered to your door. The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by Loot Crate. Founded in 2012, Loot Crate is the worldwide leader in fan subscription boxes. Loot Crate partners with industry leaders in entertainment, gaming, sports, and pop culture to deliver monthly themed crates, produce interactive experiences in digital content, and film original video productions. No matter what you geek out about, Loot Crate has a subscription box for you. To get your very own exclusive collectibles, apparel, and gear delivered to your door, be sure to click on the link in the show notes below. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is also brought to you by Voodoo. Watch the latest movies and TV shows anytime, anywhere. No subscriptions, no contract. Enjoy stunning quality in up to 4K ultra high definition at home and download and watch on your mobile device as well. To rent and buy from over 100,000 titles or watch thousands of movies free with Voodoo Movies on us, be sure to click on the link in the show notes below. Now, back to the show. As usual when watching your documentaries, I have two writing pads with me. So I got one where I write writing down notes about, you know, what I can use in my review. And my other notepad is the list of movies that I haven't seen yet that I need to watch. Um, so the, the list that I have so far is um, Saturn 3, Galaxina, Outland, Megaforce, Explorers, Runway. I'm sure there's going to be more and more and more and more as I go through them uh, or watch a documentary <laughs> again because there's so much like films talked about in a movie. And I think that's what's so great about what you did with In Search of Darkness and now doing with In Search of Tomorrow is that you delve into the movies that it isn't just the, the key fil- films of the decade, like Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars content and Star Trek and, and all those other kind of films, the Blade Runners and the Aliens, et cetera, you know, of course they're going to be featured because they're marquee films, they're key films of that era. They've had an impact on the industry um, still to this day. But what I love about these documentaries, especially like it's something like what you've done in Search Tomorrow, is those films that I had no idea existed because, you know, this even back in like in the 80s, there's so many movies out there. I mean, there was a reason why it was like video stores are so freaking huge. You know, they had to fill it up with all these VHS tapes. Um, was there films that you came across um, in the making of In Search of Tomorrow that you had no idea about and that you're like, you know what, that sounds really cool. i got to watch that. Um, and what did you think of them uh, before, afterwards? Uh, I really, in in the film that I have shown, uh, that I put together in terms of what's in it, uh, in In Search of Tomorrow, uh, I had seen every single, I had known of every single one of those films and I had seen most of them, maybe one or two I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen uh, Cherry 2000, uh, and I had not seen Mac and Me, right. um, but I but I knew very much about those. Those were those were video store uh, uh, box art VHSs where I would look at them and consider them, and something else would would grab my attention. Uh, and then years go by, and you don't have video stores anymore, and you just didn't quite get around to it. But you know, people would talk about that, and I knew very much about these films. Um, Sci-fi is one of those genres. Listen, I, I have not seen it all, and I don't claim to have seen it all. But where sci-fi is concerned, I've seen many, 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 many films because it's such a passion of mine. Um, 
but there are plenty of films that I have not seen and new ones that I had not heard of that. Uh, in fact, there was one, there were two films that I'd never heard of that are not in my movie, but I'd love to get to them if we get to do a part two, which are our sci-fi musicals that are crazy and silly and ridiculous and very entertaining. One is called the apple mm-hmm. and it stars uh, Catherine Mary Stewart, who's in our film. And we talked about that. So ideally I'll be able to get that movie in a part two, if we can get to a part two. Uh, but that's a, that's a futuristic musical you know, crazy as <laughs> her first role. And I just, you got, I, I, I'd rather not spoil it. Uh, it's near, near future silliness and it's called the apple. Um, and uh, there's another film called voyage of the rock aliens starring Pia Zadora and Craig Sheffer. And that one is equally ridiculous and off the wall. <laughs> and I think it should be like a stage revival musical for both of these things. Um, but there's plenty of stuff out there that I've never seen that I've never seen, but I've heard of. Um, you know, I'm not immune to that as as well. But yeah, in terms of in search of tomorrow, um, especially with this first movie out of the gate, um, I didn't have to do much research in terms of what I was going to fit in. Believe it or not, a five hour movie that that it covers so much. There's there's about 54 films that we cover in this, and yeah. I, I knew them all. Uh, and and there are so many more that uh, I wanted to include, but it's really big a big jigsaw puzzle in terms of what gets to stay in and what just can't fit. And sometimes you have to make some painful sacrifices that uh, I wish that they were in there. And I even did a a uh, uh, a segment edit of it, but it just doesn't fit. And we're just going to ideally, hopefully, have to push it to part two, if not part three. The interviews in your film are, are fantastic. Um, you've got great names here. John Carpenter, Paul Verhoeven, Nancy Ellen, Dee Wallace, um, the late, great Ivan Reitman, um, yes. Shane Black, Will Wheaton. Um, such a fantastic list of names there. The difference, though, in regards to what had to happen with In Search Tomorrow compared to In Search of Darkness, and this is an assumption on my part because I'm not sure about the timing of when the interviews were taking place, was that, of course, the whole COVID aspect of it all, right? Yes, and isolation, nice. et cetera. Um, what's really impressive in regards to In Search of Tomorrow is that, and maybe I am wrong, but there doesn't seem to be any type of um, uh, video screen interviews, Zoom kind of style stuff, you know, in there. Um, and this does seem to be very much one-on-one interviews, um, really well done. Um, really well shot, et cetera. How difficult was it in regards to getting all of that done? Because I assume a lot of people might have been hesitant to maybe get on camera, um, not because of what they're talking about, but just in regards to the climate of the time. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It's a it's a it's a very astute observation, and uh, uh, thank you very much. It, it is a wonderful cast, and we have so many wonderful interviews. And they're all in person. There's nothing on Zoom. Uh, there's nothing through, you know, where we didn't have uh, physical contact sitting uh, across from each other. We did do a couple interviews where uh, they were in a studio somewhere else. For example, Jesse Ventura was in Minnesota and I was in Los Angeles. So I interviewed him via Skype, uh, but it was a live interview. Hmm. Um but uh, th- we were very, 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 very much affected by COVID like everyone else was in terms of uh, uh, having to stop production for a- an extended period of time. And then 
it was slow going afterwards because once people were starting to emerge and, and choosing to emerge, um, there was a whole variety of people who, who some people said, I still don't feel comfortable. Other people said, yes, I can, but now I'm busy again because I, I've been sitting on my you know hands for so long. Um, but it was, it was, it was a challenge that we were very fortunate to overcome. It just extended the production life of the film. Um, I, I, it was very important for me to shoot, uh, especially for a very long stretch, uh, uh, outside. So we had, you know, not only social distance, but had plenty of airflow. And so we all felt, you know, safe and secure. Uh, and there was a combination of before vaccinations and after vaccinations, but yeah. once people started getting vaccinated, uh, people felt much more, uh, comfortable getting together, uh, um, but we still kept it very, very safe. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I shot a, a number of interviews in my own backyard because I wanted to have a controlled environment that uh, was relatively, you know, not too quiet other than tweeting birds, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty quiet uh, environment. And so it was really wonderful to have uh, this parade of, of, of Hollywood legends just come into my house and come into my backyard and, you know, pinch me. I'm sitting there with, you know, the likes of, you know, special effects legend John Dykstra, you know, mm. or I'm sitting with Will Wheaton or I'm sitting with Sam J. Jones, Flash Gordon himself or Adrian Barbeau, you know, Bruce Boxleitner, uh, Walter Koenig of Star Wars. I mean, it's just amazing all the people uh, who came by and hung out and <laughs> were gracious enough to spend time, you know, talking about their passions, not only about their own projects, but talking about the genre and how much they love it so much and other films that really impacted them. You know, that, that's what makes it really fun. And what is great as well, as well about In Search of Tomorrow, and I think very essential, is that you don't only talk to the, the, the actors and directors, you talk to the craftsmen who brought these films to the fore. We're talking about the world building beforehand. I mean, it's such revolutionary times in the 80s because of the, the big, huge steps taken in regards to special effects and visual effects and the work done with miniatures and, and stop motion. And you talk to a whole bunch of people, um, Steve Johnson from Ghostbusters, um, Phil Tippett from Empire Strikes Back. Um, who else is there? Um, you mentioned yeah, Dennis, John, Dennis Murin. Dennis John Murin, John Dis Yeah, just so many people, Matt essential Winston, people. son of, of uh, Sam Winston. Winston. Yeah. I mean, essential people where that created these worlds that we we see on screen that still really hold up today. And that's the other thing that people uh, really need to understand as well is that you know people uh, sometimes make fun of like CGI from say twenty years ago because it just doesn't hold up anymore. But a lot of the stuff that is made like kind of like in the eighties, like especially in regards to um, the miniatures and the, the some of the practical effects stuff, still really do hold up and. And I think it's just a real a testament to the, the what these craftsmen really did. And I think it's great that you guys shine a light on them because it might not happen in every documentary because, of course, a lot of documentaries uh, um, have to be sold and made on, like, the star power within them. But that you guys delve into the world builders, how they go about doing their craft, you know, I think it's just essential. I just want to really thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for appreciating that. That's, that's just a... Dennis Murin perhaps puts it best. Uh, he's like, you know, there's so much imagination and so much craft and so much work and effort that's all collaborative. And it's not really any one person that's making a movie. You need so many different departments 
you know, of course, you have the actors in front of the camera. You have the director running the show. You got the producer who's sort of shepherding the project uh, and the writer who is creating the words on the page where you're not going to do anything without anything uh, written down. Mm. That being said, everyone has their part, whether you're you know, the sound designer, whether you're doing the score, whether you're doing the visual effects or the practical effects. Uh, whether you're the costume designer, uh, composer, like I said, uh, there's so many people that are that are involved, and the concept design, you know, the production designer, describing, you know, William Sandel, who is a production designer on uh, RoboCop and Total Recall and a lot of Wolfgang Peterson movies, uh, as well as Paul Verhoeven movies. You know, their their insight is is incredibly important to paint the picture of what it requires to mount such a production, whether it's a major budget or even an indie budget, like a Roger Corman film. And, uh, you know, being a film school kid myself and having worked on movie sets and on movies, in addition to, you know, getting to make my own now in terms of documentaries, I've always been fascinated by the behind the scenes mechanics of getting a film made. Mm. Uh, and I think this audience is also very in, uh, intrigued by that as well. Um, part of the, when talking about the marketing of the film and talking about Starlog magazine, Cine Fantastique, Cine Effects, uh, a very specific point is made to say that the people who wanted to read about how these films were made they wanted to not be Luke Skywalker, but they really wanted to be George Lucas. They really right. wanted to be the model builders. They wanted to work at ILM. Um, you know, this was the cool stuff. It's like, you mean I get to get paid to, to do the coolest stuff in the world to get to make a movie? That's what I want to do. And, you know, a whole generation of people uh, headed to Hollywood or to production houses to make movies because they were inspired by so many of the films that we watched in the 80s. I think um, what I've, I find about myself as I grow older, and I have two kids myself, I've got two boys, um, nine and six, I find that I'm kind of living my youth through them, especially mm-hmm. in regards to the content they watch and the toys that they play with. They have their Millennium Falcons, they have their Ecto-1s, etc., and they know about this stuff because of me, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Um, <laughs> And I think it's just, it just comes down to the, the fascination of these, especially in regards to the, the, the crafts, the vehicles, the cars, the spaceships, especially from the 1980s. I still think to this day the designs and application of those, of those kind of like, I guess you could call them props, but those vehicles still are the best I've seen since then. I don't think anything's even come close. No matter how many Fast and Furious movies have come out with their souped up whatevers, there's nothing's going to match what those movies had. For myself, for myself, it's the Millennium Falcon, it's the um, Interceptor from Mad Max, mm-hmm. and it's the Ecto-1 that are my favourites from, th- <laughs> from the three. What about for you, David? Is there any vehicles oh. or ships or anything especially from the movies featured um, or maybe even not featured in um, in Search of Tomorrow that you love uh, to this day. I mean, if you had a chance to like right now to jump in one of these vehicles and have at it and just take it for a spin, which one would you go for? That's a wonderful question because I, I daily fantasize about the crafts that I wish I had. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> but uh, I'm still waiting for my my spinner from Blade Runner. So ah. I, could, I could I could land and take off and fly around in a compact car. Uh, spinners are so amazing. In fact, I have a Hallmark uh, that makes these amazingly intricate uh, 
Christmas tree ornaments, holiday tree ornaments. Uh, they have a they made a spinner a couple of years ago, and that sits at my desk hanging from my lampshade as if it's flying. Um, you know, I love the Interceptor from Mad Max, but of course I've been a James Bond fan through and through. And so ever since I saw The Spy Who Loved Me mm-hmm. um, and and every single Bond film, uh, I wanted either a Lotus Esprit or, or an Aston Martin uh, that, you know, could transform or have ultimate gadgets to get me through traffic. Um, and yeah, yeah, you know, I'm just having all these vehicles, you know, flying through space. There's so many cool things. It's funny it's like it's not the sexiest Star Wars vehicle ever, but I used to think, well, if I could have my own Star Wars vehicle, I want something that's that's reasonable and compact. And even an X-wing is really kind of big; it's not going to fit in my driveway. So I used to fantasize of having my own A-wing. Oh, ah, nice! Because <laughs> that's nice. That's pretty much essentially square-shaped and compact, and you know, uh, I could I could do my galaxy hopping on that. That's great. Now, yeah, I mean, and don't forget also the DeLorean from the Back to the Future movies. I mean, you can't beat this stuff. It really can't. Well, I think- I, I'm sorry. You know, so now you got me going. You, you made a mistake because now I'm going down a rabbit Go, go. Oh, my, my uh, wish, wish fulfillment. But uh, I also, you know, the TARDIS because that's the yeah. ultimate. It's the ultimate innocuous time travel machine where it takes up very little space. And once you step in, it's giant on the inside and you can go through time and space on it. And so, yeah, I'll stop there. I mean, there's so many we could talk about. I mean, the UFO from Flight of Navigate. I mean, come on, man. I mean, you just, you can't beat this up. And that's, and I think this is something that, again, I mean, you could just hear it in my voice. I get giddy when I talk about these films and, and what these, your documentary really, really does to me. It just, I think what's really important about what your documentary does is that it kind of takes not only, well, as I said at the start of the podcast, not only takes me uh, me back to the nostalgia aspects of remembering what these films are, but it also, in a lot of ways, for myself as as a dad, like you know, the essential things that that you know a parent has to do for their children. I think one of the most essential things is to give them a good diet. Make sure they're eating well. Make sure they do, you know, they exercise that they're healthy. But to me, I think it also has to come down with what they watch and what they listen to as well. You want to make sure they're listening to the good stuff. They're watching the good stuff because that's they're consuming that stuff as well. And I just can't wait until my kids are old enough that we can watch some of these films. I can't wait for the first time we can watch Predator together. I can't wait oh, for wow. the first time we can watch, uh, you know, Blade Runner, etc. You know, they could maybe watch it now, but it might go over their head screen or some somewhat. <laughs> Um, of course, there's. I just remember now there's nudity as well, so I scratched that one off the list. But you know what I mean, though. Um, I, I think do. it's just so essential. And, um, you know, for, and for people out there, if you want to check out uh, In Search of Tomorrow, I really do recommend you go to 80ssci-fi.com. Um, there's a sale on now until March 27th. So why, I understand, David, post-March 27th, you can't get your hand on, 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 on the physical product anymore. Is that correct? Yeah, the idea is that uh, we're we're a small company and we do this all ourselves. So we, you know, we make and 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 manufacture and distribute ourselves, and uh, we do it in batches, uh, and that's the most economical way to do it. So the idea is between now and, and the twenty seventh, you go to eighties.scifi.com, you get lots of cool perks. Uh, and most importantly, arguably, in addition to the film itself, whether it's on DVD or Blu-ray. Uh, and a digital copy and other cool things is you get to have your name in the credits Hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, you put your podcast name in the credit if you want, which is cool. But the idea is uh, you get to really be part of history and part of, you know, shepherding this over the line. Um, And um, 
you know, I think that's a pretty unique, unique uh, way of going about, uh, you know, purchasing a, a film, you know, uh, knowing that you were part of uh, having it come to fruition. And what I love about it too, you know, talking about the time in the 80s, it's all about for me and still is about the physical product as well. Um, so I'm definitely eyeing the Blu-ray and all the things that come with it um, because I, you know, I like to have a, a good central Blu-ray DVD library. Um, this, is you know. a, this is a film that that I I never fully expected when I first first started doing the In Search of Darkness movies that you know because of the the size and scope there's a lot to take in but it is very digestible but I did not expect people to be going back so many times to these films I figure maybe once or twice especially if you own it but there are people who are like oh I'm doing my annual watch oh I need my list oh, I need to sort of uh, you know inspire my choices. Oh, I admit there was so much information. I need to go through it again. Um, there's lots to chew on in these films. Um, and anyone who's intimidated by the five-hour runtime, um, you know, it's structured 1980 to 1989 with chapters in between. And, and each mm. move, each year, there's a bunch of individual movies that we cover. So it's very easy to start and stop and pick up where you left off um, for those who are intimidated by the runtime. But, you know, credit to Samuel Way, my editor, and Paul Konchek, who does amazing motion graphics, uh, Weary Pines, who does an amazing score, um, very different from the type of score that they did with In Search of Darkness 1 and 2. One and two. This stuff flies. It goes real fast. And yeah. it's a big, as much of an intellectual experience, it's very emotional experience as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it's super cool to have it on your shelf, especially when streaming these days. When, when Netflix first came out uh, with, with their whole, you know, beyond getting it uh, a disc coming to your house when i realized it was all going to be just sort of in the cloud so to speak i, I started selling off some of my dvds and blu-rays because mm. i was just like oh yeah well now it's all just on my tv through a streaming service no big deal and then i realized that these movies are constantly coming and going and sometimes yes. not coming back yes. uh, based on license agreements and so on and so forth so uh, I value <laughs> what I didn't sell so much more, and none of it's going to get sold because if I want if I wanted it in the first place, I I need it, at, you know, to access on my shelf. It's yeah. very important. It is important, and I think also in regards to why people might want to go back and have a look at, you know, the the documentary and and, and delve into it again. To me, the doc this type of documentary kind of reminds me of a photo album. In that the moment the films themselves like mark moments in time. Um, you know, films, like I said, I still remember my first movie that I saw. I still remember seeing Batman the first time I saw. I remember the first time I saw movies on VHS and the first time I picked up, you know, a uh, Star Trek film from uh, the local video store. These are moments in time that stick with us. And so to have a, a documentary like In Search of Tomorrow where you can kind of tap back into that feeling again, I think it's essential. I think it's a big reason why people go back to it again and again. I think you make a very important point there too, uh, that I really see these movies as in terms of search of tomorrow and, and the types of things that we cover, it's not really just a list of movies and how these movies were made. There's mm. so much more about the experience that you either lived in the eighties or remember from the eighties or were curious about in the eighties in terms of these movies, whenever you saw them, whether it was on cable, whether it was on streaming, whether it was on the theater, uh, whether it was trying to find it at the video store and it was out. So you got something else. These movies are more about the experiences surrounding them as much as the movie themselves. 
the family that you were with, the friends that you were with, the type of mindset that you had when you were trying to escape from something or go into a fantasy world for an afternoon or an evening. It, it's, it's so much more. It's, it's about the things that you wanted to get afterwards to have a souvenir of that film, whether it's a you know, magazine or a trading card or an action figure or just a soundtrack that you can listen to over and over. Yeah. It's more than the movies, and it's a whole nostalgic experience based on that. So for everyone out there listening, 80sscifi.com in search of tomorrow, I recommend everyone get their hands on this movie, whether you be a sci-fi lover or a sci-fi novice, whether you be a child of the 80s or born in 2005. I mean, get your hands on this movie. It's just an incredible film. It's incredible work here. Um, Such an impressive uh, feat put together. And David Weiner, I thank you so much for joining me once again on the podcast. It's always a blast talking to you and um, look at best of luck with the, uh, with the sale. And um, look, I can't wait to see where you guys come up with in the future. You know, I'm always up for what creative VC does and uh, what you do and um, best of luck to you with this release. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. You know, it's like sci-fi right now. I mean, you're, you're, you're uh, down under in a different hemisphere and mm-hmm. in Los Angeles and we get to chit chat like we're right next to each other. And that's, that's a pretty spectacular feat and it's yeah. free over the internet. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, David.